Next Chapter Podcasts. I'm Michael Goodfriend. As head of scripted fiction at Next Chapter Podcasts, I'm always looking for a good story. And I found one in an old friend of mine who I met when I was a kid in Wisconsin 35 years ago. I used to know him as Jerry. Now he's Lama Tupten Rinpoche. Every Friday morning for 10 weeks in a row, I tried to learn how that happened. These are my mornings with Rinpoche. If you have a question or comment you'd like to share, my email address is michael at ncpodcasts.com. Why, when you were young, did you move around so much? Do you know? I needed to learn how to survive, no matter where I was. I think one of my saving graces were my parents and my, my father living in Beth Stuyvesant. And there came a point I was just starting to understand what the streets of New York was about as, uh, as a young black uh, male. What do you do? How do you survive school? And how, how do you stay alive? And in that moment when I was just, and believe me, I was no saint, that's for sure. But I went to school, I played music, I tried to engage myself, whether it was dance or music or theater, etc. I was an art kid. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was in Lawton, Oklahoma, um, which is Fort Sill, the military base, living on the outskirts of town. The cows would come up and eat the grass. 
but it was such a wonderful place compared to New York. I would run on these dirt roads around farms and barking dogs and, and cows and open fields. And it was so different from being in New York. So I was out of New York um, by the time I was in the 10th grade, which was perfect. And uh, so your initial question is why? It was just my faith, my karma. And as a result of moving around so much, I got to see we're all the same. We all cry and laugh. We all seek happiness. We all want love. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what part of the country or what country you live in. I got to see a, a lot in my young uh, uh, development. So it's sort of a distorted learning how to survive no matter where you are placed. I was conceived in, I was conceived on the East Coast in North Carolina. And then obviously went or was taken <laughs> in the developmental stage to Guam where I was born. And through a series of circumstances, uh, I was adopted by Willie and Willie Gardner. Um, so Willie Gardner was, is my dad's name. Willie Lee Gardner is my mother's name. And uh, I was probably adopted, I'm gonna say maybe 18 months, uh, maybe probably around 18 months from some pictures I've seen. But um, so Willie and Willie, who were from Selma, Alabama, uh, adopted me and therefore I wound up on the island of Guam. I'm not, I'm not Guamanian, I'm not Chamorro. Here's something interesting about Guam. The um, Guam, obviously we know it's a strategical point in World War II, but prior to that, the Portuguese came to Guam and Guam became known as the island of thieves uh, because the, the Portuguese said they will even steal the nails from the boats. Um, and it was, just, again, it's just a question of survival. But many, many years I did find out in the, answering your question, I discovered by meeting my birth mother uh, is that I am Port Portuguese. <laughs> my grandfather stowed away from the Lisbon area and came to North Carolina. He was, he was the overseer of a, a sharecropper farm that obviously was part of the slave, uh, that whole uh, dynamics. He meets Annie Mae, Fannie Mae Perry, and obviously thus my mom is born and thus me. But my heritage is probably African-American and, and, and Portuguese. So it, it's such a convoluted story that my main remembrance is at all cost, survive. And it took me a long time to really come to terms with, if you're going to make it in this world, you have to stand on your own two feet. 
And if you're fortunate, like those men in the sky, many angels will come to help you. And when they do, be grateful. So my stories are sort of distorted because they come from a singularity. And I, I think it's in our DNA, the singularity, which you know very well too. We must survive. And in that survival, maintain your humanity. Because sometimes we survive, but we lose our humanity. As a young kid, I was given two, two things. In order to find yourself, perhaps you must first lose yourself. And do not let your body exceed the scope of your mind. Find balance. From the time I was probably 12 or 13, to maintain the balance between the mind and the body. And from the time that I was a young boy, my mother said once to me, she pointed a finger, who are you to judge? It takes a whole lot of people to make this world go round. Because obviously living in Selma, Alabama, and maybe there were many, many experiences that I had, you had no idea when you're told, go through the alley, sit in the back. At that point, we've been called so many names. I had been called so many names. Oh, and excuse my, I, I, I'm not offended by it. I know what it is to be called nigger. What that means, black boy. Oh, now I'm a Negro. I've been elevated. <laughs> I'm Negro now. <laughs> Oh, but then I'm an Afro-American. Then I'm African-American. Then I'm black. Who am I? I will not allow you to define my existence in this universe, nor will I justify my existence in this universe. I exist in this universe because I exist. And therefore, I will define myself. So I think I've tried to live my whole life a kind human being that has decided I have the right to decide who I am and how I wish to relate to others as a human being. My story is really not important. Your listeners, your story is important. What is your story? And what will you tell to the generations to come? So, Mr. Green, yes, who, in your description, all I can think of is the Karate Kid, the movie. <laughs> it was that's what it was. Yeah, Mr. Miyagi, me and another friend, Jeremy, and he also had just moved into uh, Memphis Iverson. We were always being threatened, or they would catch us sometimes, and they pull your fingers apart, and they say, if you yell, we're gonna all beat you up, and. Um, or they would take a cigarette lighter and hold it to your palm and you know, just all kind of crazy things, you know, kids do to each other. So he said, I know of this karate master that just moved in. We should go see him. And uh, so we both decided to go start training again for survival um, that we felt 
we're not going to carry a knife. We're not going to get a gun. Um, what can we do? Um, we wanted to join a different gang. So I guess you could say it like that. Um, so we found him. We sat on a hardwooden floor. It wasn't like sitting in a zindo. You have a nice cushion, no. And we set Cesar, Cesar folded legs, and you sit uh, there. You have to jump up, be ready to fight. Sit. So we'd go through this, sit, uh, sit, up. Uh. Then you'd come up, and then the uh, uh, master would point one student, advanced student, they come attack you. Then another one attack you. Then you had 10 beating on you. You had to talk, talk, talk. Just fighting. 10 people. Then one go away, then another one, and then only one left, and you go, you're nothing. <laughs> you're just one person. We go have tea. <laughs> so I, I remember just, uh, so it was a kind it was jujitsu and karate and Zen meditation. And he was very strict, but very kind. Um, so I, I, you learn, I learned to, to, you learn to fight. But I, I believe I had learned as I said, you, you must learn to fight and be willing to sacrifice in order to survive, but not lose your humanity. So I studied with Master Green, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And then, um, I remember being, once I started training, even though I before I started met Master Green, uh, Bruce Tegner, if you, Bruce Tegner is one of the early martial arts uh, figures. And he had written several like little books you could buy and, uh, and, and sort of go along with him. And so I went and I found a cinder block in a burlap bag and I put it in my room and I would practice what I came to know later as iron palm training. And every day I practice, hit this bag, hit my hand, and then punch this bag. Because I was, I, I used to have these like huge knuckles from karate. So um, one incident, <laughs> and I was practicing every day. Something happened with me and my mom, and I was upset. I hit the kitchen door. It split. And she looked at me and she said, if you ever do that again, I'll kill you. <laughs> she was karate master. <laughs> no. She didn't even blink. She didn't even blink. But what I think the message that I'm still hearing Never allow yourself to be swayed so by your emotions that you lose your discipline. Never let anyone bring you to the point where you lose your discipline. You lose your sense of your own self. Don't lose respect for yourself. And I can still remember that moment being at 216 Madison Street in Brooklyn, New York, and hitting that kitchen door and seeing it, seeing the panel split and her just standing there. And the way she looked at me was, don't mess with the mother. <laughs> I'm sure you've had those moments. 
in the old people, they say, you're going to have that come to Jesus moment. <laughs> so my mother was, she was Zen master. She was really a Zen master. And then when I went to Oklahoma, I studied judo and taekwondo um, through probably, uh, yeah, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. So I spent three years uh, studying uh, taekwondo. And then when I went back to New York, I went to Cameron State University in Lawton, Oklahoma. But when I finally went back to New York, I started studying uh, Shotokan, Shotokan Karate. I have one thing in mind, break you. When you come against Shotokan practitioner, you better be ready to deal. So I studied Shotokan for many years, for about three years. And then the meditation started when I met Master Takanashi, Ronald Takanashi. You can find this, all these people on YouTube now. Ronald Takanashi, and uh, he was called the Black Dragon, introduced me to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, he also, he was a Zen priest in the Pureland tradition. And so he started me on this path by giving me this text, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, one of the oldest texts in the Nyingma tradition, which is about how to die, but also how to live. It's a very, very profound text by uh, Guru Rinpoche, uh, Padmasambhava. Even before that, having come from the Zen tradition, this book, Three Pillars of Zen, was one of the first texts that I also read even before the Tibetan. And I kept reading this Three Pillars of Zen book, and the only thing I got from it was it said, whatever you're looking for, you're not going to find in this book. It didn't make any sense. So it continued my journey. What am I looking for? What are we looking for? I think it comes down to some basic things, don't you? Peace, harmony, happiness, love, starting with ourselves. So my journey, when you ask, what is the stories? Well, there's so many stories. <sighs> you know, I used to go and every Sunday, we go fight tournament. We go into tournament, Madison Square Garden. This is when martial arts was, it was still, there was a certain purity to it, the art of it. Um, and we go and the, the floor of Madison Square Garden was, you had all of the various schools from the East Coast, even from all over would come. And we would engage in a committee fight um, for trophies and uh, to demonstrate our skills. We didn't know anything about percussion protocol. <laughs> you know, you get knocked out. I've been knocked out so many times. And, uh, you know, ribs broken and the hands dislocated. And, but that was, the, that was sort of our, we, we lived that life as martial art practitioners. And so I used to love to go and uh, fight the tournament. And I all the way up, I'm a, a fifth degree black belt in our tradition. Nisa Goju, I'm a fifth degree black belt. I also have the title in Kung Fu as Sifu. I studied Tai Chi and Bagua, etc. So, but all of these things was how to be, how to be in this world and live and survive and still be a good human being. The code of the Bushido, the code of the Bushido from the samurai, from Japan. We see it again, this concept 
to engage in the battle as though one had already died. What is this Tibetan Book of the Dead about? Who are Tibetans? What is this Tibetans? There's another text you might want to find called uh, Secret of the Ages, Manly P. Hall. I think it's called Secret of the Ages. And in that text, again, as a, a young person, I saw a picture of a yogi with a prayer wheel and with a, a set of uh, beads in his hand. And he was walking on the mountain path as among the clouds. And I went, what is that? So I began to search out and I came across a, a man named Rudy, who again was a spiritual master uh, in the Hindu tradition. And through a series of events, I met Namakazi Rinpoche. And Namakazi Rinpoche, uh, who was known as Sonam Tikazi, was the translator to His Holiness the Dalai Lama for about uh, 12 years or so. And he was with His Holiness when he left, um, uh, when he left Tibet and went into, across the border to, to India. And I became a student to Namakazi uh, Rinpoche. And again, I spent many years studying and practicing and retreat uh, with him. In 1988, I, again, after and many other teachers I came across, also uh, Geshe Wangel, who was one of the first uh, uh, gumpas uh, in Freehold Acres, New Jersey. So I would get on the bus every Sunday and go to New Jersey and, and be with uh, Geshe Wangel who again was a teacher to many, many of the famous known uh, Western teachers of the day. From Lama Kazi Rinpoche, I decided I was gonna go to India and go to Tibet and the classic fantasy, go to India, go to uh, Tibet and find master. Maybe you know this movie, uh, what is it called? Lost Horizon. So I thought, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this journey. I'm going to go to India and find Master. So I attempted to go, had everything in place, and the whole thing just crashed. And in that moment, it crashed. I was so depressed because I wasn't, I couldn't go. And this is before Lama Kha. I went walking one night in the East Village. And it was raining. And I was walking and something said, stop. And I stopped and I looked up and it said, the Tibet store. Wow. You want a sign? You got a sign. <laughs> so, so the next day I went back and I, I met a man. His name was at that time was uh, Bob Floss. I call him the, uh, Lama Floss. So uh, I met Lama. And he, in turn, sent me on the journey to go to India, which crashed. It took me almost, it seemed like it was forever. But I knew through him I was going to discover something. And after about a year, he said, okay, I'll introduce you to my teacher. I was being vetted, <laughs> new word, I was being vetted. So he directed me to Lamakazi. So I went and I met Lamakazi who lived not at the top of a mountain, 
but he lived in a high-rise on East 72nd Street in Brooklyn, New York. No, no, in Manhattan. So I became a student of the Kazi family. And uh, one of the first things I remembered, which I still teach to this day, Lama Kazi asked me, when you die, would you like to turn into a rainbow? Yes. And then he said, in meditation, I have a glass of water filled with sand, and I want to clear the water. What should I do? And I thought in my clever Western mind, I'll get a strainer, pour the water through, catch the sand, and it will clear. And he said, why bother? Put the glass down, and the sand will settle, and the innate clarity of the water will come forth. This is our meditation. To sit, allow the sand to settle, and the innate clarity of the awakened mind will appear, because it's already there. So he was very good. He's always my master in my heart. In this very moment, I can feel. So to give you some continuity of a journey, I've even reflecting myself, I've been in Asia, I've been in Europe, I've been in the United States, I've been so many places. The main thing I keep coming back to, who are you and where are you now? In all of these steps, are you following a teacher? Are you, is it your questioning that leads you on your journey that takes you to Asia, that takes you to different forms of practice? There's got to be something else. There's got to be something beyond our minuscule existence in the cosmos. But here we are, conscious of our existence and the vastness of the multiverse. How is that? I ask. That union to surrender and merge with the divine which is spoken of in all of the ancient texts, Bhagavad Gita, Upanishads, Vedanta, Rigveda, all of them ancient texts that leads us to the merging into the great expanse of the universe. So the journey is to, to come to, is to recognize that within each and every one of us, Yeah, but maybe we already know we are divine. And it's as though it was in our DNA and we're constantly being led toward the evolution of that consciousness that is ever present, like Lama Kazi pointed out to me but we ignore it. And it's like, whether you pay attention to it or not, it's occurring. And I don't know, if, you, if I look at it from a Buddhist standpoint, there may be, there's not just this realm of existence of sentient beings. What we can see is, as you just mentioned, animals are also sentient beings. We are sentient beings. 
Are there other dimensions of reality where other sentient beings exist that have an intelligence that we cannot necessarily uh, perceive? And in the evolutionary process, are we not all moving toward connecting that which, for the lack of a better word, that divine aspect that lies within each and every one of us? I'm sure in your animals that you have, they exhibit something sometimes where they seem more intelligent than you. Can you know when an earthquake is about to come? No. Animal? Yeah. Of that magnitude, why can't I know? Now, I've been in two major earthquakes, a 7.9 and an 8.7, one on the island of Guam, and the other one, I arrived in my, in 1988, I went to Nepal, didn't know anybody, went to Nepal. And uh, I arrived there on a Thursday. On Sunday, I was lying in the bed in the Russian embassy section of Nepal. And we awoke to a 7.9 earthquake. And I thought, how's that for an awakening, right? The bed was bouncing up and down, thrown onto the floor, and my mind is going earthquake, earthquake, earthquake. I mean, I'm in Nepal. If you know anything about the structure of Nepal, wow, you're luckily if you get out. Luckily, this was a well-built building by, it was the old Russian embassy. So I stood in the doorway and the whole place is shaking like this, oh my goodness. And then finally it stopped. Um, yes, it was devastation, not in the immediate area, but around there was, and then we know that Nepal had another, I think it was two, three years ago, maybe, another devastating earthquake. So all of these things have sort of, they're, they're events, like being in a dream. I'm trying to wake up from the dream. Stop dreaming. Or maybe if I'm going to dream, at least be an active participant <laughs> and help create it. I'm not answering any of your questions. I don't know. Then I'm going to keep asking, uh, because I, you, you go to the divine and I go to the mundane. What to you must be mundane, but to me is amazing. So I want to. Here's my question: How many martial arts forms do you know, or have you studied? I studied in jujitsu, judo, taekwondo. Shotokan, Nisei Goju, Tai Chi Tuan, Bagua, Luka Pafat, Mantis, Dragon, Sword. And then my major one, my, my claim to fame, is I studied uh, Wing Chun, Wing Chun Kung Fu. If you, the history of Wing Chun, everybody knows. Who is the king? Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee is the one who really started the more mm, expanded awareness of the martial arts through his, through his charismatic and his movies and the way he spoke, which is starting to resurface again. But the, the story goes is uh, Bruce Lee studied with uh, Yip Man. There's, you want to watch movies, watch Yip Man. That's our story. So I've studied from the time I was 12 up until now, this instrument 
but mainly when you know i tell the students why do we train in these martial arts it's not to fight who is the enemy who is the foe i am my ego that concept of to master oneself that's the real mastery to have discipline within when you're at your lowest can you stand up that's your training when others are beating you and calling your names can you still maintain your humanity and your kindness and your compassion that's the training right so all of this training yes i've had you know you a few run-ins and uh, but i've had a place in the dojo in the kun going to tournaments uh, where you can test is the skill developing yeah you want to go you can go on <laughs> it's called jerry gardner super weapon <laughs> such a sham it's on youtube i'm on youtube <laughs> And you can find me on YouTube doing early, uh, doing forms of Wing Chun and probably talking just as insanely as I am now. Uh, hopefully it's a little bit more <laughs> sophisticated. But within all of that, all of that training, the final training is always train your mind in the sitting meditation, breathing meditation, in the seated yogas. Uh, I also studied Hatha yoga. Uh, for several years and still incorporate what my early training in hatha yoga is not that different from the daoist yoga um, but all of those yogas as it says the union of the mind and the union of the body something you just said the union of the sacred and the union of the secular the union of the divine and the union of the mundane they're all one and the same if one has the right view. That was My Mornings with Rinpoche with Lama Tumten Rinpoche and me, Michael Goodfriend. Our sound designer is Tay Blow with additional sound design and composition by John Gasper. Our engineer is Adam Bernard. If you have anything you'd like to share in the way of a question or comment for me or Rinpoche, my email address is michael at ncpodcasts.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L at N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com. I'd love to hear from you. And if there's a way to incorporate your messages into upcoming episodes of the series, I'll make sure it happens. And I'll let you know. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really makes a difference, and it helps us know who's listening. Visit our website, ncpodcast.com, to learn more about all our shows. Next Chapter Podcasts.